You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same episode 275 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host once again this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I live in Woodstock, Georgia, but I'm not a professor, assistant, or otherwise anywhere. Uh, joining me are two actual factual professors, Professor Nathan Gilmore, who teaches at Franklin Springs, uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. We've only been doing this for 10 years. You'd think <laughs> I would have it down by now. Ah, uh, and teacher I do, so that part I do agree with, Michael. Well, I called you professor. Also this joining is us is assistant professor, uh, David Grubbs from Houston Baptist University. How may I assist you? Yeah, it's uh, such a strange title, isn't it? <laughs> I only help myself, apparently. Certainly, no, I don't have an assistant. Yeah, <laughs> I don't anymore. So, um... What we're doing this week is continuing our discussion from last week, which uh, overflowed the boundaries of the hour we set for it. But before we get there, what's new on the network? So we have a new uh, episode of The Core Curriculum. Uh, Three uh, familiar voices, I would think, uh, talking about the Iliad. Uh, Trying to think, do we have anything new? Uh, David, will there be a new Profiles by the time our listeners hear this? Um, I think, um, no, it will be the next week. Okay, listeners, you'll just have to wait for that one. Yeah, it's been a quiet week at the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Just rocking on the front porch, you guys. All right. Well, uh, as a reminder, we are, we're talking about two Gabriel Marcel essays that I have translated and made available on the show notes for this episode and for the last one. Last week, we talked mostly exclusively about the essay Orthodoxy versus Conformity. Today, we're going to talk mostly or exclusively about In the Margins of Ecumenism. Um, you may remember if you have if you listened to last week's episode, and if you haven't, you probably should before you listen to this one. Uh, that, that we're kind of contextualizing these essays by talking about uh, kind of two internecine. Did I use that word right? Squabbles, uh, the one between Sorab Amari uh, and David French about integralism and Christian engagement with politics, and David Bentley Hart and almost everybody on. Uh, on universalism. So again, we go into that stuff in much more detail in the previous episode. Uh, so do go back and listen to that if you haven't already. And if this is your first episode ever of the Christian Humanist Podcast, well, kind of a weird place to start, I have to say. And welcome, <laughs> welcome. Yes, welcome. <laughs> Listener, we welcome you to our podcast. Welcome, Don't we, Michael? <laughs> yes, yes, please keep listening. We are halfway through dinner. There are leftovers. Well, let's talk about In the Margins of Ecumenism. This is more or less a review of a book by the French Catholic scholar and priest Yves-Marie Congar. I don't know much about him. I know he was heavily involved in uh, Vatican II. I have not read the book that um, that Marcel is, is talking about here. I don't know that it's ever been translated into English. But here again, Marcel wants to square a potential circle. He wants to know how Catholics can maintain their claim that their church is the church without calling dissidents heretics outright. Or might maybe we ought to say that he wants the church to identify heresy without necessarily excluding heretics from the mystical body. And his solution involves a, I think, what we might call an existential maneuver on the part of the Orthodox Catholic. Nathan, what is that maneuver and how helpful do you find it? Well, first of all, let me uh, narrate what I think is the maneuver you're after here. And if you're after a different one, when I'm done, you can narrate it as well, because this essay has a number of interesting passages. The one that caught my attention 
uh, is Marcel uh, positions the heretic uh, as one who is basically revealing in the way that, you know, a sickness reveals a weakness in the body. Uh, so, for instance, uh, a an Arian, let's take Arius because he's sort of the uh, classical case study in heresy. Uh, he is one who insists so strongly on the unity of God uh, that he's going to deny any kind of uh, distinction between uh, father and son and spirit. And in fact, he's going to go so far as to say that son and spirit are, are in fact not God because then you have three gods, not one God. The maneuver that Marcel seems to be making is to say that uh, the heretic in that way provides a kind of service uh, to the church and therefore uh, should be welcomed as someone who is teaching the church to refine its own doctrine. Uh, and therefore, you know, as part of the grand narrative of the church, this is the person that uh, teaches the church to emphasize, to insist upon the unity part of the Trinity. Uh, of course, Trinity is a, is a uh, I can't even think of the a mashup. I forget the fancy college word for mashup. Uh, portmanteau, that's what it is, between uh, Trius and Unus, uh, three and one. Um, so, you know, the, the maneuver the, that he's making here uh, is to discourage the Orthodox Catholic from thinking of the heretics as some sort of outside threat, some kind of uh, alien figure who presents a threat uh, outside the walls, but rather uh, to think of, you know, heresy, the, her her the heretical doctrine, there we go, easy for me to say, uh, as uh, a moment for the church to teach and to learn. Uh, Michael, is that the maneuver that you had in mind when you were uh, thinking about this? It is, yes. And, and the, the sentence I have in mind, and it's, it's such a difficult sentence to translate that I presented it in both French and English. Uh, he says, it seems to me that it, the heresy, must set in motion a reflection analogous to repentance. For ultimately, if our conduct is Christian, we're always at the height of the doctrine we profess. Heresy as an aberration wouldn't occur. So he, he wants the Orthodox Christian, the Orthodox Catholic in his case, to look at heresy as a personal failing, um, both of the church and in some ways of the Orthodox Catholic himself, which, I mean, our listener, people who aren't, this isn't their first episode, will can imagine how much that sentence appeals to me, but also kind of frightens me. Yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and confess, Michael, and we're going to talk about this at more length later, uh, but it is a maneuver that I have seen when I've had conversation, or I guess I've heard, when I've had conversations with usually converts to Catholicism and e actually even more often to Eastern Orthodoxy to say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll present the claim that, you know, uh, my own tradition, the Stone Campbell movement, the, the Disciples of Christ, you know, considers the historical divisions among worshiping bodies to be a, a sin that, you know, we repent of by uh, bringing everyone who professes Christ to the table together. And the, re the reply is often, oh, yes, I know. I mean, you know, the uh, real problem here is that I am so personally unpleasant that people don't want to come to the true church. And I, I, I always grit my teeth a little bit because, you know, first of all, I, I don't want to, you know, agree that all of Christian history is a result of your personal unpleasantness. Uh, but then also, I, I also want to say that uh, I am making a different sort of claim than the one you seem to be responding to. Well, yeah, I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but your your claim is that there is, in fact, no true church, that the, the church is a kind of amorphous body that, uh, that, that we need not draw any kind of uh, wall around. Is that correct? No, I wouldn't say it's amorphous, but I would say that it is historically contingent uh, so that there is no Archimedean point, so to speak, that it's always a matter of a continuing process of learning from the tradition. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think Marcel would have, have us listen to what you just said and ask ourselves, uh, where did Catholicism go wrong that allows Nathan Gilmore, a man of otherwise good sense and good faith, to think something like that? Because, I mean, of course, what you're, what you're describing, 
heresy is way too strong of a word. Um, but that's a big problem for an Orthodox Catholic, right? The, the, the centrality of the church, capital T, capital C, the Catholic Church and its magisterium is really important for Catholicism in, in such a way that what you're saying, I don't know that it really makes sense from a Catholic perspective. It's, it's I, I, I don't want to call it nonsense because I don't want to feel like I'm attacking you or, or for you to feel like I'm attacking you. But it is it is a very different sort of claim than what the Catholic, the, the claim the Catholic Church makes about its own Catholicity. No, I think that I, no, I, I think that's a, a valid account of things. And, and David, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to intrude onto some of the stuff that you're going to be talking about later, but maybe we can tag no team this one. Uh, but as I, as I've been thinking about this essay and about this conversation, Michael, what I first thing is something that I realized a number of years ago, but I've kind of forgotten it. And that is that the predicate sectarian is something that no Christian can unironically apply to that Christian self. Uh, because sectarian as a predicate depends upon a basically ecumenical narrative. And that ecumenical narrative says that, you know, the historical differences among Christian gatherings is something that is, you know, an understandable and perhaps even a life-giving function of the historical contingency of the church, but that the sin that the members of the ecumenical community repent of is to deny fellowship on account of those historical differences. So, I mean, you know, to deny that project is to be sectarian, but if that project is not valid in the first place, if you say that, you know, yes, there are historical bodies that have, you know, uh, broken fellowship because of historical difference, and once all of them come back to us, then we'll have church unity again, that's a fundamentally different story from the ecumenical story. Would you agree with that account? I would, and I think Marcel would as well. You'll notice at the near the end of the episode, he he points out that all the ecumenical discussion that's happening in the 20th century, at least in 1939 when the, when the essay is written, all of that ecumenical chatter has excluded the Catholic Church, or rather the Catholic Church has excluded herself um, from it. Uh, that the, there's something in Catholicism in particular that resists ecumen, ecumenism, ecumenicism. I, I've probably gone back and forth between yeah, those ecu- two ecumenism is usually the the word. Yeah. So I I I I think one thing that makes this essay interesting is that Protestantism and to some extent Orthodoxy are kind of naturally ecumen, ecumenical in a way that the Catholic Church is really not permitted to be it, it, the Catholic church to be the Catholic church has to imagine that it's the fullest expression of Christianity. If not, maybe if not the one true expression, certainly the fullest. So yeah, yeah ecumenism is going to come much easier for a Protestant and in particular a Protestant in your tradition, Nathan, your kind of anti-denominational tradition. Um, it, it's just going to be a more natural thing than, than for a, a Catholic and especially a pre-Vatican II Catholic. Cause you know, I'm still new to the Catholic Church. I'm not an expert on Catholic history, but my understanding is Protestants were still not really considered Christians in 1939 in the Catholic Church. I could be wrong about that. Right. I, that's the basic sense that I've got as well. Listeners, if you've got a, a, a more developed understanding, by all means, write in. But Michael, I'd actually go a little bit further to say that from within a Roman Catholic view of church history, the predicates ecumenical and sectarian are basically unintelligible. Because both of those predicates assume a narrative in which all of the parties have sinned against each other by breaking fellowship. In that Roman Catholic narrative, all of the bodies except for the true church have sinned by breaking fellowship. I mean, is that a fair description of it or am I caricaturing? No, I I mean, I do think that's fair. And I I think that's kind of what Marcel is cautioning us against in in the section I just read. So instead of thinking of the Catholic Church as being this body that has been sinned against by those awful Protestants, he he wants Catholics to reflect on the the failings of the Catholic Church in one of the senses of the church uh, that allowed those heresies or maybe even demanded those heresies to take place. So, I, I mean, I... I I am not speaking for as a, as a Catholic theologian. I'm not even Catholic yet. I'm in RCIA, so I, I, I want to make it really clear that I'm not a representative of that church. 
Um, but I, I have, I have heard Catholics say that the Reformation was a kind of tragic necessity, brought on by the abuses of the medieval Catholic Church. And I, I think, I think Marcel would like that idea. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But what is not permissible within, again, within that intellectual framework, right? I'm not, I'm not positing that there is some. Uh, well, I, I, gosh, there's no good way to say this. I'm not positing that anyone is actively and verbally forbidding this, but what makes no sense within that narrative, that's the way I should put it, is to say that the Catholic is also one of these historically contingent gatherings that has sinned against the other gatherings by breaking fellowship. Within that narrative, the Roman Catholic Church never did break fellowship. Instead, uh, you know, the personal failings of Roman Catholics might have caused other people to break fellowship, but it's the relationship is more like, you know, the parent who feels guilty about driving the child away than it is like siblings who have realized that their feud has gone past what family uh, affinities should allow. Is, it, is that fair enough, Michael? I, I Again, I'm going to push back a little bit. Um, this is the top of page... Uh three in the translation I've provided. So he, he wants us, quote, to at the same time distinguish between church's mystical body, which is and remains eternal, of which Christ is the sole head and in which no hierarchy can be conceived except the hierarchy of sanctity and virtue, such that in this order, a pope might be less close to Christ than a humble, ignorant woman. Uh, and the church's society or institution in which there is an authority and subjects and which is a body in the sociological and juridical sense of the word spreading out physically into the world and having distinct parts. That second one, I think he would say, is historically contingent in some of the ways you're talking about, even though the first one is not. The problem is the third paragraph that goes along with that, but also to conceive a unity between the two. So those two things are separate, yeah. and yet they're not separate. And that, that's why this conversation is difficult to have uh, uh, between Catholics and Protestants, I think. Because you guys let me know how, what you think of those two, um, those two distinct understandings of the church that are nevertheless united. I don't, I don't really have a sense of what you think the church is in that sense. Yeah, David, I've been talking too much. Chime in, man. Lolzy. Um, one thing that I think is, is worth pointing out that while Nathan, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that it was, uh, inappropriate to refer back to Arianism because that is the common, the common referent for heresy as the thing that, um, sort of dra draws attention to an area in which, uh, clarity is needed. All right. Um, that's kind of the classic one, but that's not the one that he starts with, and uh, he starts by referring to the Reformation specifically, and I wonder, maybe I just missed the reference, but because in this he mainly is talking about um, divisions between the Roman Catholic Church and uh, Protestants on one hand, and then he also mentions uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, he never mentions Arians. Um, no, he does I, not. I, and I, th I think uh, I, I would wonder if we if if we asked him, would he say, is the sort of thing that happens in the Protestant Reformation and the and what divides uh, the Protestant from the Roman Catholic now, is it the same sort of thing um, that Nicaea sorted out? Because he makes this claim um, a bit later on. Uh, where is it? I wish I could... Um, he, he, he says something about uh, there being... Uh, I, wish, I, wish I, could, I wish I could find it, but the, the, the text that I, that I printed out doesn't have, doesn't have the pagination on it. But at some point he says something like all the major divisions in the church have been about the nature of the church. Yes, he does say that. And I don't see how that's, how you could possibly say that about Nicaea. Um, you know, unless you want to construe the basic matter of Nicaea, that of a presbyter um, not acceding to the order of his bishop to back down. Um, but that's 
that's never the central that's never the central matter of of Nicaea. So, you know, the the, the I I I just I when when I look at that I look at this essay, um, I have. I have trouble seeing how the situation that he talks about here would have the Presbyterian or would have a, a, a Presbyterian or a Lutheran in the same kind of category as an Arian. Yeah, and and actually, let's let's call an audible and move on to the question I was going to ask you in a minute, David, which was the the limits of the kind of ecumenism he's proposing. Um, it, it seems to me that the threat when you talk about ecumenism. Um, and when you when you talk about nonconformist orthodoxy, as as he is in the first essay, the one we talked about last week, the threat for both of those is relativism. And in fact, he outright denies in this essay that relativism has any substantial place in Christianity. So I, I think that's a really hard thing to square with ecumenism, because at least to some extent with ecumenism, you're saying this is relevant, uh, relative, that in some ways Presbyterianism or Lutheranism or the Stone Campbell tradition are valid expressions of Christianity, even though the Catholic Church is the arbiter of what is a valid expression of Christianity. And they say, they don't say it's not exactly. You, you know what I mean? Like, so this is this is difficult. Yeah, right. So then I, then I got to wondering what he would say about um, Mormonism. I mean, Mormons conceive of themselves as Christians. I, I think a lot of uh, Protestants and Catholics don't think of them as Christians. I I suspect uh, most Mormons are not based on based on their doctrine. What would he say about Jehovah's Witnesses? What would he say about other kind of fringe Christian-ish groups? And I I legitimately don't have an answer because I legitimately don't know what kind of distinction he would make between the Arian heresy and the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Because he doesn't actually have that conversation in this essay, um, but I would wonder some of the things he says towards the end of the essay about um, it's, it seems to be saying that there are there are expressions of Christianity that ought to have been within uh, within the circle of a visible unified church that uh, for historical reasons. Um, become developed in the Lutheran offshoot or the Scottish Presbyterian offshoot uh, and not within um, the circle of Catholicism, which is, and, and he identifies this as a, um, as a bad thing. But I have a very, very difficult time imagining him writing the same essay and saying, look at all of the goods we lost when the Aryans spun off. That's right. So relativism, I think maybe there's there's a scale here. <laughs> Some things are more bad, worse than others. Some I, I want to be convinced of this, Brad. I mean, can, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I really did get the sense that when he when he was using the noun heresy, he really meant heresy. I mean, you seem to be saying that he means Presbyterians and Lutherans. I, I take him to mean anyone who is not part of the historical Roman Catholic Church. Well, yeah, I mean, he he's using the word heresy, but but you know because that's that's the word that he's got, um, you know, to talk to talk about the to talk about this matter, but because um, it, it's it's right there in the first page or so. His first question is, or his first point is about, you know, quoting Congar, is about the Reformation. And then the second point is about um, the value of heresy. So given that the topic that he's raised is that of Reformation, you know, I'm, I'm taking the second point as apropos of it. And um, all so his examples kind of a... are, the, are the Reformation. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, are, yeah. are you guys taking it then as just a bit of sort of lexical carelessness that he uses heresy here or i mean it just seems no. to me that i mean we're, we're skating over that noun i don't think it's lexical carelessness i think he's using the lexicon that he's been equipped with that's right i think in 1939 um roman catholics were probably much more ready to call protestants heretics than they are today but they wouldn't have called arians heretics they would have it's just that 
to some degree, Eve Marie Congar won. And and Vatican II came and, and decided that Protestants are separated brethren, I think is the language that gets used. Yes, imperfectly which, joined. Which is which is Congar's language. So right. I, I I think I think the the essay is may seem less radical to us than it did in 1939. Like I, how how uh how scandalous would this quote he gives that apparently scandalized his priest? We don't. We really don't know what God thinks about the Reformation. Well, I don't know how many people would be scandalized that by that today. Surely some, but also, I mean, I think there's a much greater sense now than in 1939 that Protestants really are separated brethren from Catholics. And and that part yeah. I don't disagree with. I mean, like I said, it is like I said. I mean that that noun has historical meaning to it and that meaning includes nestorians and you know monothelites and monophysites and so on and so forth yeah so again i mean like the the fact that you know in this essay it doesn't mean any of those people that are its primary referent just strikes me as a weird maneuver yeah because because the meaning of heretic changes to some degree after vatican too right Right, but I mean, yeah. even before Vatican II, it included Arians, yes? Right. Well, he seems he seems to not be able... Uh, he, see, he seems to not have um, the language to be able to say that heresy is this and sectarianism is that. Which, again, I don't think sectarian is a predicate that's intelligible in this narrative. And maybe that's the difficulty I'm having with it, guys, is that, you know, mm-hmm. when I, again, when I think of heretic or heresy, let's use that noun, it's a noun that includes Arians and Nestorians, right? Yeah. And I mean, when you say that it doesn't in this essay, what I want to say is that is a very strange use of that noun at the very least. Yeah. And yet, I mean, if if he had... If he had meant it to include people like that, you'd think he would give an example that wasn't the Protestant Reformation. Maybe, I mean, that is not. what he's I discussing. Know. You know, I mean, I mean, he's not having any ecumen, you know, talking about ecumenical conversations with Nestorians. Um, you know, so you could just say argument from silence. But at the same time, for him to step in to say, here, here are the wonderful goods that the church lost because you know, because the Arians went this way. Um, I mean, isn't that an implication that, of his other arguments, though? Um, that That's one of the reasons why I, I feel like the terminology is messy. Because if that is an implication, then, then there's just some really weird stuff going on. Like, at what point is, you know... At what at what point do we render some kind of do we render something, you know, so beyond the pale that it's not, uh, in 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 some sense an overemphasized goodness that needs to be brought back into the fold. At what point um, does the heretic become a schismatic? Well, I thought schismatic was the standard predicate for the protestant reformation yeah that's true so again i mean like you know what you just narrated david the people whose doctrine has diverged so much that there is nothing good uh and in fact they are so pernicious that they must be expelled i mean the noun for that is heretic oh i'm i'm not i'm not disagreeing with you i'm i'm not disagreeing with you about that then i'll disagree with me (laughs) <laughs> okay, no one's disagreeing with you, Nathan. Oh, um, you know, my my only thing is, um, I yeah, it, it, it given that he's talking about Congar, um, I haven't read all of Vatican II in detail, but I'm jeez, fairly, who has right? But I'm fairly certain, you know, I have a reasonable amount of certitude that Arians do not get addressed as separated and perfectly joined brethren. No, I suspect oh, not. I, and, but we're not talking about Vatican II. We're talking about this essay, right? And I guess, but, I guess here's he's what co- I'm seeing, David, is that... But he's quoting you pair... one of the masterminds of Vatican II using his language. 
that's my point. And this essay is a kind is, of step toward Vatican II. Right. And I suppose my point is when you pair the image that he gives of, you know, the heretics as those who, because of the personal failings of the Orthodox, of the Catholics, right, uh, have, you know, been pushed into this error. Uh, and then you also use this noun, heretic, heresy, that has a certain historical range of meaning. I guess I took that just as a rhetorical reminder that whatever nice things we say about Lutherans, Presbyterians, whatever else, uh, they are still, as far as this essay is concerned, still part of that historical category, heretic, that also includes Pelagians and Nestorians and so on and so forth. Oh, by the way, okay, okay I'm going to interrupt you here because I have some terms. These are from... These are from the 1992 Catechism, so this is post-Vatican II. Here's what the terms mean. Incredulity is the neglect of revealed truth or the willful refusal to assent to it. Heresy is the obstinate post-baptismal denial of some truth which must be believed with divine and Catholic faith, or it is likewise an obstinate doubt concerning the same. Apostasy is the total repudiation of the Christian faith. Schism is the refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff or of communion with the members of the church subject to him. So I, I think one thing he's saying when he says that all of these um, all of these arguments are ultimately about church authority is all heresy is to some degree or another schism. Because uh, heresy is a refusal to submit to the pontiff. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's the thing, I think, that makes the conservatives or the not uh the uh the not uh, conservative catholics are perfectly happy with that um i wonder if liberal catholics are what do you uh, what do you mean um it's just i i i seem to remember within my lifetime um uh catholics who feel perfectly happy to blast uh the residents uh the the resident of uh you know the papal see uh if the papal see disagrees with the sorts of things that they want him to be saying although i mean that's that's not a liberal phenomenon david uh, there's a there's a big um there's a big argument right now in the catholic world about pope francis and there's i don't know mm -hmm. that a lot but a yeah. very very vocal group of people who think that he's a false pope I mean, and and under the definition I just gave, I don't see how they're not schismatics. Right. Well, the, the the interesting thing there is that the conversation is whether or not he's a false pope, because, um, you know, historically that's a thing that can be. There have been antipopes. There were uh, there there were uh, crises of authority in uh, the Roman Church where multiple people were simultaneously um invested with you know the 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 name and authority of of pope and you know sat on either side of a mountain slinging anathemas and excommunications at each other um but but that that's that's a that's a category of argument that assumes the authority of that papal office but I, do do you hear do you hear more more liberal Catholics taking their disagreement into that you're an anti you're an anti pope zone? Yeah, I I don't know because I was I was much further from the Catholic Church when Benedict was pope. But I mean, okay. certain, certainly liberal Catholics don't have any particular affection for him. I I don't know. Like I read Gary Wills on. John Paul II. I don't remember him calling him an anti-pope or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess I guess that's my point. Is the the argument the argument there is, you know, are you the true successor? Presuming that someone is, all right, um, you know, and but you know, with the, with uh, a Protestant, you know, is not going to have that argument on the basis of are you or are you not legitimately the person who has this office? Their argument is going to be, does anyone have that office? Right. So, I mean, under the Catholic definition, there's no such thing as schism for a Protestant. 
it, it would not be defined in those terms. Yeah. Well, we may have already covered the next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just because, uh, well, we need something to get us arguing, right? <laughs> As we've discussed, he is a Roman Catholic clearly speaking to other Roman Catholics about Protestants and to some extent Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christians, but really it's Protestants he has in mind, I think. Since the two of you are, as it were, the indirect objects of the essay, I wonder how you felt hearing him talk about you. First, uh, I appreciated that he put his finger on precisely the point where the the Protestant is going to, um, uh, f- f- you know, f- feel feel irritation in the conversation. Um, uh, he speaks. Uh, he says it's surely it's surely impossible for the non-Catholic not to rebel against what risks seeming to him like overweening pretense. I personally felt this with uh, real acuity at the interview I referred to earlier, um, and then this universality, this universality, this catholicity, understood holistically. The Protestant, in particular, will say, "How can you claim it so categorically for your church, which, all the same, in the historic configuration of the world that we can all plainly see, is just one church among other churches?" Um, how are you not aware of how offensive and even scandalous it is for us to hear you declare that you retain the truth in its integrity, whereas the rest of us only possess some broken fag- fragment of it, some adulterated residue? Um, and then, and earlier, uh, I think a little bit earlier, he said something similar, which is that a Catholic simply presenting his position on uh, the relationship of his his position uh his his position on a, on a things ecclesial um over against the protestant uh is going to be perceived as a protestant mainly as a power play uh which yeah i mean that 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 has always been the issue <laughs> I, and and it's I, I i appreciate him you know i appreciate him pointing that out um, I appreciate him uh, him identifying that. Uh, he also says some he says some nice things uh, about uh, the roots of the Reformation, or at least quoting Yves Congar uh, right at the very beginning, saying that at the origins of the great secessions, those that have a positive spiritual value. Maybe there's the distinction between Arians and and the Lutherans. Um, the origins of great secessions, those that have had positive spiritual value, there's ordinarily a spiritual feeling that is authentic, and inasmuch as it is positive and pure, authentically Catholic, it is indispensable to fully recognize all of this if we want to be able to judge the Reformed churches with a judgment that is not tainted with a falsifying partiality. So, to look back in the history and say, there was something there. Um... And he's and the the quote from Congar uh, talks specifically uh, about um, rediscovering beyond the concept the inviolable mystery, beyond the literature of edification, a live a living gospel running from the spring, beyond the devotional practices, sometimes disfigured by the highest bid and by going too far. Parenthesis indulgences. Parenthesis a religion that is simple, pure, virile, denuded beyond the priest in their robes and the prelates with their titulature, the one-on-one with God in the secret places of the conscience. So he's identifying, uh, or quoting Congar as identifying, um, things that he sees at at the beginning of uh, the Lutheran Reformation in particular um, that he says those that were actually good, good Catholic things. And to the extent that the Reformation grew out of those things, it was... It had a possib it has a possibility for a positive spiritual value, but which nonetheless is imperfect because it is not part of uh, that visible church, which is not the same as the invisible spiritual reality of the church, but is nonetheless truly stitched together to it. Um. So I I think that's. That's uh, I, I appreciate that too, 
because that's way more than Trent was managed to get would, would manage to uh, accede to Lutheranism. Well, you know, Luther did call the head of the church the Antichrist. Yeah, maybe that's not the best, the nest, the the best bounds at this point. But uh, you know, I, it's it's hard not to look at the beginning of the Lutheran Reformation as um, essentially a power play. Uh, that uh, Luther raises an issue of of abuses in. Uh, I mean, I mean it. Maybe there are some living Catholic thinkers who say, oh yeah, it's totally appropriate for a bishop to purchase uh, more uh, Episcopal sees uh, through an installment plan that's funded by the sale of indulgences so that um, you know the Bishop of Rome can you know trick out St. Peter's more. Maybe there's somebody who says, yes, all of that is a great plan. Um, for the most part, I think, you know, uh, Roman Catholics are on the same page uh, as Luther on this one saying, yeah, that was that was not appropriate. That was an abuse. Um, but at the time, when Luther wants to have the conversation about whether or not that's an appropriate thing for uh, the church to be doing... Um, instead of having that conversation, the church said, sit down, you're not the boss of us. And, and Luther's response was, well, you're not the boss of me. Well, let me push back about the, uh, on that just a little bit, David, um, because the fact is that's not the only thing this was about. Um, Luther introduces some, from the Catholic perspective, novelties, even heresies, into theology that that simply need to be corrected if you're if you're a Catholic, um, the the notion of uh, faith alone, for example, I I think is a notion that Catholics still take serious issue with. So it's not just that he's pointing out the corruption in the church; it's that he's, you know, from the Lutheran perspective, restoring theology; from the Catholic perspective, changing theology. And so I, I don't see how there wasn't going to be a schism at some point. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, obviously, if there had been a more virtuous pope at the time, um, yeah, I, I think that you're right about the the Lutheran Reformation and its fullness. But in the 95 Theses, you're not yet to justification by faith alone yet. That's true. It's interesting to to think of what would have happened if the if the Church had listened to him on uh, on on that question. If, if maybe as, he wouldn't have been, yeah. and here, here too is a place to think about what Marcel is saying in terms of understand that, that heresy is a opportunity for the Orthodox to repent. I mean, if, if they had listened to what almost everybody will agree were, were real complaints, maybe he wouldn't have been led to what the Catholics take to be a heretical position. Am I being political enough about the way I'm presenting that, David? Because I don't want to get in a fight about justification here. Well, in the... Uh Profiles episode with uh, interview that I had with Philip Carey about um, his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the Gospel that Gives Us Christ. One of the points that he makes uh, in that book, and, and it shows up in the, in the interview, is that particularly in its earliest formulations, uh, Luther's ideas about faith and and trusting uh, and trusting Christ and being saved through that faith were initially articulated within his within his doctrine of the sacrament of penance that the that the faith that you believed was the declaration of the priest to you that your sins had been forgiven and that it was a uh, an impiety to doubt the word of God through his representative, the priest, that you had been forgiven. Now, originally framed in that way, how different is that? You know, how was was that incommensurable with uh, the the positions of the church at that time? Um, maybe, you know, over the course of time, penance becomes less of a thing that shows up in Luther's work, right? Um, but at least at a particular point, 
um, much of much of the things that he were saying that that he was saying about the faith in the word that that you were told about forgiveness was within the context of the visible church and its exercise of the sacraments. So, I mean, we don't get to see side B history. Yeah, right? it would be we, so interesting to know what would have happened if if somebody a little more accommodating had occupied the papal seat at that point. But I, I think it's very very important too to see Luther's arguments about the authority of the church um, and and his critique of the church's arguments about its own authority in light of the rotter who was sitting on the throne. Um, you know, if 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 it had not looked, it's it, it's it would be very very difficult, um, in in a. You know, just imagine that the president of the United States was someone who you deeply disapproved of, not only on a policy level but also on a personal level. I'm trying to imagine. Yeah, just tough. just sort of. You know, it's just sort of squint your eyes and enter the fantasy world in which the president of the United States is is uh, a, a bad person, and this person wants to argue. You know, you say no, stop doing that, and this person wants to argue, um, no, you you can't talk back to me because there are these laws about treason, and here is my constitutional argument uh, that's going to limit your. Um, abilities to critique me because of um, some some argue, some arguments about treason or sedition or something like that. Maybe that terrible person president. Um, maybe maybe they would have some kind of legal argument, but you would be in no mood to listen to it <laughs> because it looks like just a power play, not some kind of principled defense of. A legal uh, or constitutional or whatever, you know, other kind of argument. Um, you know, I I, I I I feel that in this essay, one of the things that Marcel is acknowledging in a way that I think is pretty charitable is that Protestants tend to cringe at what seems to be simply a power ploy, um, uh, an attempt to get power, uh, the leverage of authority, um, and to acknowledge that maybe there have been times when that was, at least tacitly, maybe there were times when that particular doctrinal position was leveraged to sort out things that should have been sorted out in other ways. And because they were sorted out with that lever and not another one, the church missed the opportunity to grow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever whatever you think about that existential maneuver we talked about in relation to Arianism or Mormonism, I think I think it's probably a pretty good one to perform in relation to Protestantism. At least that made me feel good. <laughs> Nathan, did you feel good, too? I didn't. I didn't. But what I did appreciate about this <laughs> essay is that, I mean, it does bring into the light, if you will, uh, the incommens- incommensurability of 20th century narratives, right? So David talked largely about the 16th century. I want to talk about the 20th century because you do have, like I said, the, this ecumenical movement that, you know, and I'm going to narrate it, you know, from inside of it because I, 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 I would call ecumenism part of my theology. Uh, and it is a theology that, you know, takes a look at the the data of the history of the church and says that, you know, really from the 11th century forward, but let's talk about from the 16th century forward, uh, you have historical bodies of Christians uh, who have broken fellowship with each other over these disputes uh, and now in this ecumenical movement have recognized that those divisions uh, ran counter to the spirit of unity that you see in St. Paul, counter to that spirit of unity that, you know, you see in Jesus's prayer in John 17, uh, and therefore gathers those bodies that historically have broken fellowship with each other 
and invites all of those bodies to repent together so that we can all once again join together and share the table of Christ together. All right. The other narrative is, like I said before, that because of the personal failings of those within the true church, uh, there were people who departed from that true church uh, and they probably had good reasons, intelligible reasons, reasons that we can sympathize with, but nonetheless, they are the ones who have departed from what is true, and therefore it is incumbent upon them to return to what is true. So what you've got here, and I like that Marcel doesn't try to paper over this, uh, is two stories of what has happened in the history of this gathering called church. Uh, and the fact that, you know, we can, to some extent, narrate this so that people whose narrative, you know, is, is radically different from our own, uh, we can say what is good about their contributions, uh, but that ultimately, you know, because of that radical incommensurability, uh, again, it's not that Catholics prefer sectarianism to ecumenism, it's that when you're within that intellectual framework, ecumenism and sectarianism don't make any sense as predicates, just as within the ecumenical narrative, uh, you know, it's not that, you know, they are refusing to come back to what is true. It's just that that narrative of return is incommensurate with the ecumenical narrative. So like I said, I mean, you know, I, it didn't leave me uh, happy. It didn't leave me comfortable but it did leave me with a stronger sense of the contours of, uh, and you know, again, here's, here's my ecumenical vocabulary coming back, uh, you know, the, the contours of this historical sin, even recognizing that, you know, within the other narrative, that's not entirely true. Michael, what do you think? Well, the important question, Nathan, is should you be allowed to take communion at a Catholic church? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want to relitigate really, really that one. W within the ecumenical narrative, the answer is that we should all share a table together. I'll, and I'll leave it there. I, I guess I don't see how Protestants don't believe that whatever tradition they've chosen is closer to the whole truth than all the other traditions. Otherwise, why would they have chosen it? So maybe, I, maybe they don't believe so as blatantly or to the degree that Catholics believe that. But if you're a Presbyterian and you've thought about it at all, you're, you're not a Presbyterian because you were born Presbyterian or because it's the closest church to your apartment or whatever. You're a Presbyterian because you want to be a Presbyterian. You obviously do so because you think that it has the biggest fragment of the truth and everybody else has smaller fragments. And, and, I mean, that's what he ventriloquizes Protestants as objecting to in Catholicism. But I just, I, I don't know that I see how it's any different for anybody else. Well, let me speak of someone from inside, you know, the Disciples of Christ, which historically is a unity tradition, right? You know, our understanding of that history uh, is that the moral imperative to Christian unity is such that it should encompass a larger range of disagreements than what some historically have said it should encompass. And I'm being very careful with my wording here because, as you note, Michael, it's not as if we are utter relativists that, you know, uh, if you profess that there are 600 gods, you can still be, you know, a, a member in good standing of your local disciples' church. Probably not. Yeah, you got to go to the Episcopalians <laughs> for that. Uh, you can thank me later for setting that punchline up, Michael. But uh, it is to say that if we're talking about historical trends, that over the last, you know, several centuries, the trend has been to protect agreement at the expense of unity. And the disciples see ourselves historically as a movement that wants to, I guess, tur uh, turn the dial the other way. That's a bad metaphor, but I can't think of a good one. So that we are, to a greater extent, although not to an infinite extent, privileging unity over agreement. But, but that's because ultimately, I suspect, you think that unity is a more Christian virtue than agreement. 
Yes, and the content of our appeal, again, is that disagreement should happen around the table of Christ. It should not happen at the boundary between those included and those cast out. All right. You said we weren't going to have this, Michael, but we did. <laughs> no, no, we, we, this was not an argument. I, I don't think I, I was mad yes, at it you was. Last, last time we, last time we talked about this. I'm not mad at you this time. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I, I think we've both chosen our words very carefully. So, it's oh, I, I, and I'm sure, and I'm sure we'll get angry listener emails either way. So, yeah. well, you know who really hates us all? The Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> Well, let's go out, since we've narrowly avoided fighting, by talking about the recent controversies we have invoked earlier. Uh, what, what would you guys say to Amari French Hart and anybody else in a Marcellian spirit? Well, let me start with the disputes between David Bentley Hart and, you know, among other people, N.T. Wright uh, and Calvinists and Thomas and so on and so forth. Again, you know, I think that Marcel's existential move that we talked about today uh, would be to say that, you know, Hart's uh, rather caustic, rather abrasive uh, exchanges, I'll be diplomatic, with these various figures, uh, if anything, you know, they are revealing of uh, a certain neglect of rigor, a neglect of uh, a willingness to correct in charity that sort of manifests as uh, a will and perhaps a drive and perhaps even a glee in uh, correcting, if that's what you want to call what David Bentley Hart does, uh, with sharpened blades. Uh, so, I mean, I have a hunch that, uh, you know, when he makes his argument for universalism in this year's book, or when he makes an argument for uh, certain translations of New Testament passages in last year's book, uh, that, you know, again, the existential move that we talked about today, I mean, would tend to uh, incorporate that into an overarching story in which, you know, he is a uh, an irritant, to be sure, but an irritant that brings healing, potentially, if we know how to receive it. Uh, you know, when it comes to the uh, conformity and orthodoxy, uh, certainly no one is going to call David Bentley Hart a conformist. Uh, at least I've never heard that. Uh, I'd be, I'd be, I would love to hear the argument for that, by the way. Uh, but I think that, you know, his ongoing appeal to the goodness of God, to the ultimately loving nature of God in that book, uh, is something that, you know, demonstrates that essay's concern with a transcendent point of reference. Now, I think the fact that so many people in good faith, uh, would dispute his conclusions, uh, indicates that, you know, the orthodoxy con versus conformity is not the end of the conversation, but the beginning of it. Now, when it comes to Amari and Hart, no, Amari and French, there we go. Uh, Although Amari know, probably doesn't like Hart that much either. I, I'm going to guess you're probably right. I mean, <laughs> David, David, David French doesn't either, capitalist that French is. But uh, I think there, Honestly, I'm inclined to think of David French as more in the spirit of Marcel, honestly. I am too. Uh, because, you know, what French is interested in is letting government maintain a certain distance from the core human truths so that, uh, you know, the people who are existing within the protection provided by that government have the time and the space and the safety uh, to disagree with each other, to persuade each other. I mean, David French, listeners, if you if you listen to our episode on John Locke's letter on toleration, I, I think that David French's position on these things is about as pure a manifestation of Locke's argument there as you're going to find in modern politics. Uh, so, I mean, I think that Amari is a lot more inclined to do what, what Marcel is concerned about with orthodoxy and conformity uh, in making, you know, the culture war more of an absolute than it deserves to be, and therefore forsaking uh, some of the charity and some of the mercy uh, that are necessary for a transcendent appeal to happen. David, I just talked way too long, good man. What do you have to say? Oof. I'm just incredibly turned around right now. Um, the... Uh... One of the one of the things I may, I think I 
think I'm pushing back at you, Nathan? We'll see. Uh, no, you're one, not. No, one, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that uh, Amari's argument, though, um, one of the ways in which it, in which uh, I think Amari's argument meshes with Marcel's is that when we talk about orthodoxy, we're talking about um, a a pursuit of a most faithful being in time, with reference to a uh, a horizon of a known transcendent. Some some someone who is at once transcendent and beyond us, but who is also spoken and operates among us in intelligible ways. Um, so that if you if you take that move of Marcel and then move into uh, his ecumenism his ecumenism essay. Um, the the ecumenism blah, the ec, blah, I can't say that word the ecumenism that he imagines in that essay um, can only work if both Protestants and the Orthodox are also in some way working in reference to the same transcendent that the Roman Catholic Church is. Um, Amari's argument is that not everyone in the culture war is working with that transcendent, and to behave towards them as you would to those who have the same spirit in an, in some kind of ecumenical sense, um, yet in a radically differing form, um, that's a different kind of conversation. And Amari is saying... Um, not everyone who is in our culture, not everyone who we're talking to, is of the same spirit of us as as us. Is working uh, in a in a pursuit of an of an ever more faithful um, living against this horizon of uh, the speaking transcendent. Um, so I I I think that that also matters in this conversation. And David, I mentioned last time that there's a third essay that I could have assigned uh, about tolerance. I think it's called The Phenomenology and Dialectic of Tolerance. It's a very boring title um, that that speaks really to what you're talking about there. Um, and maybe I should have assigned it, but then this would be a three-part episode instead of a two-part. Uh, so, <laughs> we'll come back to it uh, another day. Maybe we will. Like I, like I said last time, I'm trying to write a book about Marcel, so I imagine this is not going to be our last episode on his work just because it's what I'm reading right now. But thank you guys so much for uh, wading through it with me. Oh, yeah. No worries. Next week, it is our annual Halloween crossover episode, uh, which I am hosting. So this is three weeks in a row of you having to hear me attempt to uh, to order a conversation. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. We're going to be talking about the Stephen King novel Misery and the, uh, the, the movie version of it uh, a little bit as well. So it's going to be me and Christina Bieber-Lake. And uh, David's wife, Katie. Yep. Uh, Nathan, what show are you going to be on next week? I am on the Christian Feminist Podcast talking about misery. Nope. No, about Carrie. Carrie, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, there may be miss. misery in Strike involved. two. <laughs> <laughs> Reading any Stephen King novel brings a little bit of misery. Uh, and David is not participating this year. Would you like to give an explanation for that, buddy? Yeah, I... Hmm. Let, let's 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 just say that uh, King is a hard pass for me, um, for reasons. Hmm. Fair enough. So uh, I will announce next week what David will be uh, leading us in a discussion of the week after that. In the meantime, uh, you can get in touch with us. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Our uh, email is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We also have a network Twitter account, which is ch radio network. CH Radio Network. Uh, feel free to get in touch with us there as well. Uh, we're also on Facebook. And, you know, really, somebody should set up an Instagram and a WizWaz page for us or whatever the new social network is. <laughs> but I, I was going to say, is there such a thing as WizWaz? Doesn't it sound like a social network? 
Whatever uh, the kids are using these days. Wh- whim yeah, wham. you had me fooled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I told you WizWaz was a thing and that we had an account there, you wouldn't ask any questions. I, I would say, yeah, actually, I've decided not to do a WizWaz account, you know, for spiritual reasons. Yeah. <laughs> well, it took us 10 years to get Twitter, so I figure it'll be another 15 before we're on WizWaz. At least after it exists. <laughs> get in touch with us any way you can, and uh, maybe you could write a letter, um, and and we'll uh, we'll, we'll uh, get back in touch with you. Maybe uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore saying, "Let your sins be strong, and let your faith be stronger."